Welcome this morning. We're so glad that you're here joining us on campus. And those of you that are joining us by church at home, we are really thrilled to have you. So for a moment in the building and wherever you are in your living room, just turn to someone and say good morning to them. Would you do that for a minute? You turn to someone and say good morning. You may have to like project across a a couple of seats today, but say good morning to them. And uh, we are glad that you're here on this beautiful sunny day. That's faith, right? Yes, we're, we're glad that you're here to share with us from Scripture. So grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Genesis today, chapter 32. You say, Mark, we're in a series through the book of Romans. I know that, and I'm not confused. But yet I want to share with you something from the book of Genesis today, taking a little break from Romans, as we prepare for our week of prayer. We start praying starting tonight at midnight, For seven days, 24 hours a day. And you say, Mark, I can't pray seven days, 24 hours a day. I know. But what we're going to ask you to do at the end of the service today is for you to sign up for one hour online, for you to dedicate that one hour, or if you want more, that's perfectly fine, for you to pray. So I want to talk to you about prayer for a few moments. So um, it's, it's leaf season right now. And so if you looked at my yard after the rain or the wind, then it looks like, I always say, it looks like the leaf fairy threw up all over my yard, right? It covers all of my grass. It covers my roof. And so I start this mission. I start this mission about this time of year, and there's a battle between me and the trees around my house, right? And I win every year. I don't know why they just don't give up, stop dropping the crazy things, but yet I always win. And so I get out there and I get my backpack blower on. It's a moment of therapy for me because I put my headphones on. I got my phone in my pocket. And I'm listening to music or listening to scripture. And, and so I start blowing leaves and I do that for, you know, hours sometimes. And it's just kind of getting away from everything. And so I do that. But across the street are two small children, Madeline and James. And Madeline is, I think she's maybe about three years old, four She's four. She corrected us. They think she's four years old. And so I'm out in the street the other day talking to her dad. And she comes up and she says, Mr. Mark, she's four. She says, Mr. Mark, why do you blow so much? That's what she asked me, right? Yes. She asked me, why do you blow so much is what she said. And I said, well, she's four years old. And I said, Madeline, because it's therapy for me. And she looked at me extremely confused, you know, about that. And, and so, but, but I realized that I've done it so many times that I'm out there. It's raining leaves all around me. I'm still, it seems like almost a hopeless situation because the more I, I get them out of my yard, the more fall from my trees. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt helpless? Have you ever been there? I'm sure in all of our lives. So let's, let's just clear the air. Okay. Make sure I'm in the right place. Have you, if you ever have been in a situation where you felt helpless, raise your hand. Put your hand up. Ah, I'm in the right place. Put your hand down. So this is perfect. You're in the right place also. Maybe that you feel that you're unable to affect positive change in something. Maybe it's relationships. You know, it's your marriage or with your roommate or or it's a friendship. Or maybe it's the social issues that we're dealing with in our current culture. You know, how do I affect positive change when it comes to racial tension in our country or poverty? Or, Or what do I do about abortion? Or maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's, you know, what do I do about COVID-19 or what do I do about cancer? Or it's an emotional challenge. You're dealing with fear or worry or anxiety that it paralyzes all of us at some point within our lives. Or the political climate, you know, how do I navigate the current political 
political climate in, in our country. And I think the biggest challenge for us ahead of us right now is that how can we stay away from a political discussion at Thanksgiving meal, right? Yes, without having this fight where you start beating on each other with turkey legs. So, so how do you, uh, how do you avoid, how do I love my neighbor as myself when we are so vastly different in so many ways, right? We currently have Biden and Trump signs coexisting peacefully in people's yards in our neighborhoods. But how does that look a couple of weeks from now? I, I, I don't know. And you say, Mark, you got to stop because I'm just one person. So how can I, in a positive way, affect what's going on in the climate around me? How, how can I do that? Because I want to do something. I'm doing some things to try to help to change the world and to make it better. But I just can't do it on my own. And I want to sincerely. I want things to be better. And I think that's probably all of our hearts in the room that we just want things to be better. But I feel like I'm backed in a corner. I feel like I'm helpless to simply address some things in our, our current world. I feel like I have no real power. Maybe I should do something. Well, wait a minute. Maybe I should pray. You know, but prayer seems to be so passive sometimes. So maybe I should just pray. It's Genesis chapter 32. It's our narrative this morning. Let me give you a little background about this situation. You have two brothers. They're twins. Their names are Esau and Jacob. They are the sons of um, Isaac. And, and they're vastly different. Esau and Jacob are vastly different. Esau, he's that rugged, outdoor type kind of individual. In fact, the name Esau means hairy. I don't know if you knew that or not, not H-A-R-R-Y, but H-A-I-R-Y. Now, why would you name your kid Harry, like as in hair on your head? I don't know, unless he is very hairy. Harry likes to hunt, so that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Esau is a hunter. He's hairy, he, and, and he, so he watches hunting videos on YouTube on his cell phone. He drives a 4 by 4 That's Esau. Then you have Jacob. Then you have Jacob. Jacob is more of the indoor type of guy. He likes to cook. That's what the scripture tells us when you read Genesis. He watches HGTV. He has a Pinterest account. He does, yes. And, and he drives a non-fossil fuel car is what he does. So that's Esau and Jacob. They are greatly different. And then after watching the Food Channel one day, Jacob decides he's going to pick, he's going to brew up this stew that's absolutely amazing. Esau comes back from hunting because we know that hunting is very tiring, I guess. And he comes back and he's starving. So he asks Jacob for a bowl of stew. And Jacob says, all right, I'll give you a bowl of stew if we trade something for it. And so, you know, when you ask somebody for a trade, you're going to negotiate. So you got to shoot really high. So what does Jacob ask Esau for? He asked Esau for his, <clears throat> excuse me, his birthright because they're twins, but Esau appears into the world first before Jacob. And so he asked him for his birthright, thinking that he will get something a little less. But Esau is that, he is that impulsive at the moment kind of guy. And he says, sure, I'll give you my birthright for a bowl of that stew. And so you're probably thinking, dude, if I could just find the recipe for that stew, right? If it has that kind of power with people, then I sure know some people I want to feed a bowl of stew to. And then, so he trades birthright for a bowl of stew. And years pass 
And one day while Esau is out hunting, sitting in his deer stand because his dead Isaac wants some venison uh, roast, which is his favorite meal, Jacob and his mom, Rebecca, they hatch a plan. And they hatch a plan to simply steal Esau's blessing from his father, who is old and his eyesight is not very good. So they're going to deceive him. So they take out of the freezer some venison. They cook it up in the oven. They, they dress Jacob up to look like somebody off of Duck Dynasty, you know, because, because we know that Esau is hairy and he sends him in and he fools the father and Isaac blesses Jacob. And in the Jewish culture and community, when you give a blessing, you cannot retract the blessing. So the blessing was for a lifetime. And so he blesses Jacob. And when Esau returns, Esau re- discovers that he's been demoted in the family, not only just in the family structure, but in the economy of the family. And Esau is so angry that he vows to kill his son or kill his brother Jacob when his father dies. And you say, listen, don't throw rocks at Jacob, right? Or don't throw rocks at Esau because you would be angry too if that happened to you. But yet you sold that for a bowl of stew. And when I realized, you know, and I read this, there's this vow to kill Jacob. Esau makes this vow. And so what does Jacob do? He packs up his matching set of luggage and he books a flight out of town and he leaves for 30 years and he never returns. And I thought about these two brothers. Esau, that, that he's that hairy hunter guy, right? And so they name him Harry. And, and then Jacob, you know what that means? You probably know it, that means liar. Now, how, how do you love your children by naming one Harry and the other one liar? I don't know, right? Yes, and if you plan to have kids in the future, don't do that. Okay, understand that. Because that's just going to hurt their self-esteem, absolutely. And so after 30 years, God tells Jacob to return home. Is what happens. He tells him to return home. And so we start this conversation, I think, where we need to begin this morning. And it's this. That he tells Jacob to return home after 30 years. But here is the kicker. Esau still lives there in that land. So when I begin to think about this, I have this question. Who's in control here, right? Who's in control of all of this? Who controls our lives? It's Genesis 32, verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he, cry, he called the place Mahanaim. That's a hard word to say, Mahanaim. And so he calls the place Mahanaim. So here's the thought. God sovereignly directs our lives. And we say that all the time, but I don't think we really grasp that or wrap our mind around that because you're going to return home. This is what I want you to do. God says, return home, return to the place of your birth, Jacob. But yet Esau still lives there. And if we don't start there, I think in our lives about who controls our lives and God is sovereign, then what we do, we sort of have this theology in our life that we kind of control things. And God runs into our life when we're in trouble. He gets us out of trouble. God removes himself from our life. And it's sort of what I call Jesus is my wingman theology. And a lot of us have that kind of theology with God that we're flying along. And long as things are great, then God is somehow over here outside of our lives. And then when we're upside down, 
down, God swoops in. He simply corrects things in our life. Then he moves back out of our life. And then we're okay. And we have that kind of theology. And what I realize is this. We have to understand that God sovereignly directs our lives. It is what we find in the book of Romans. I have to read from Romans this morning. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things, underline that part, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so we find here that, that Jacob has this experience with angels. It's the second time he's had this experience with angels. And when you encounter God, something changes in your life. Sometimes it causes you to walk back across a bridge that you thought you would never walk back in your life. It, it causes you to redeem things that need to be redeemed in your life, to face things that you are extremely afraid of. And what he's afraid of more than anything else in the world is his brother Esau, and rightfully so. And when I read this, God says, go back to your place of birth, go back to your homeland. But there's no assurance from God as to what Esau is going to do to him when he gets there. Yes. Oh, let's pack up and go home. Right? I treated my brother really bad. I stole his birthright. And and I'm pretty sure he's probably still living there. I don't know if my father is living or not. So he made a vow that he would kill me when my father dies. So I don't know because I've been gone for 30 years. So I'm just going to go back. But God gives him no assurance as to what's going to happen when he gets there. You know, what do we fear most? I think, in this story. Do we fear what people will do to us when God says something to us? Is that what we fear the most? Or do we fear our disobedience to God, which is the greatest fear of our lives? And I think that if we're going to use the word fear, then it has to be that of our disobedience because Jacob was wrong in what he did to his brother, yet God is working in his life. Look at verse 3. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and, and, and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male servants and female servants. And I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in his sight. So here's what he does. He tries to do everything that he can to to simply reconcile the relationship. He says, hey, I've been hanging out at our uncle Laban's house and I made a life for myself. I haven't been hiding out from you. I have resources. So this is not about me borrowing money from you. If a long lost relative knocks at your door this afternoon and you haven't seen them in 30 years, your first thought is probably going to be what? What do they want, right? Isn't that, yeah, they're there to borrow money. They need something from me, maybe he says, don't worry, I have all my own flock and everything. He says also that I've simply, the intent of my heart is to find favor with you. I want to make, you know, bury the hatchet. Bygones be bygones. I want to reconcile our relationship. Have you ever, and, and, but because I've been here, have you, have you ever done seemingly all the right things? Have you ever tried really hard in a situation to make it right and then you at the end get the wrong results? Have you ever been there? I think we all have. You can't be nice enough, you know. You can't be above and beyond enough in the situation. It comes down to that of our human initiative and, and our human power simply can't change some things no matter how hard we try. Man, when I look at the world, when I look at the brokenness of life, 
when I turn on the news or read something on social media, I see the pain of, of just, <clears throat> excuse me, across the board in the world. I always say in my heart, I want to change things. I want to make things better. Uh, I don't want people to, to hurt like they do. And, and I understand the brokenness of the world that we live in, the theological place that we find ourselves. I, I, I understand that completely. But still, my heart is for making the world better. But sometimes, no matter how my heart says that, I can't bring enough positive change to the things around me. And it's frustrating at times. It is. Look at verse 6. And the messenger returned to Jacob saying, we have come to your, to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. Oh, things are going to work out then, right? He has actually accomplished this. But look at what the rest, rest of it says. And there are 400 men coming with him. That's problematic, isn't it, right? Isn't that true? What, what's going to happen here? Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed and he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So here is the moral of the story. Don't find yourself in camp number one, right? Stay in camp number two. That's exactly what, because this is not a battle plan. I, I'm, I'm not a strategist when it comes to war, but I can do, this is not a battle plan. This is a plan of escape, and you're going to sacrifice half your family simply to save your own skin is what this is. And Esau never tells them why he's bringing 400 men with him. What is my thought? My thought is Esau's not coming for a family reunion cookout and then to post all the pictures on social media. That's not what he's coming for. Esau has vowed to kill Jacob. And that's what Jacob is thinking. That's exactly it. Jacob has been gone for 30 years. He doesn't know if his father is still living or not. So he, he doesn't know what's going to happen. And you get to that moment in your life and you say, God, you sent angels and you spoke to me. You know, God, this is your idea. I'm back here at home and I wouldn't have come back home unless, God, you had not brought this up. You know, here I am with all these women and children and, and I look like some reality show from TLC, like 500 and counting, you know. And I have this traveling zoo of donkeys and camels and, and sheep and all of them with me. And, and I'm, not a, I'm not a warrior and Esau's coming with 400 men and and I'm backed in a corner, and God, you placed me here. All things work together for our good. Why? Because God is sovereign. Have you ever thought that maybe the feeling that you have, and I have to move on quickly because we've got a lot of text to cover, but have you ever thought, let me just drop this in your heart, that the feeling that you currently have about being boxed into a corner right now could actually be the very best place for you and how God is dealing with you in your life. Because you have no other place to run, right? Yeah, you have no, other, no, no one else to bail you out, so to speak, that you have to turn to God, the one, the only one that can absolutely help you in life. Look at verse 9. And so here's what, here's what Jacob does. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, here's the promise. Here's the promise that God makes to Jacob. Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. That's what he's saying. <clears throat> 
that I may good do you good. But yet here he is boxed in a corner, right? And, and his brother's coming with 400 men. I'm not worthy of the least of all of the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my sta- staff, I crossed this Jordan and now I become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother for the hand of Esau. For I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. And what he's saying is this, that he's going to come and not just take me, but he's going to eliminate all of my lineage is what he's going to say. So he prays. Here's a thought about prayer. And it's this. Prayer is not passive. Understand this. Prayer is not passive. Prayer is not perfect. Why? Because we're the ones that are praying. So prayer is not perfect. But prayer should be passionate. But prayer should be passionate. Jacob is holding up God's promises in front of him. He's holding up God's word in front of him. Can we do that? Can we do that? And if you read the text, you realize that this is only the second time that it's ever been recorded that Jacob even prays. Is Jacob collecting on something that God has obligated himself to as if Jacob is collecting on a debt that God owes him? And so to answer the question about holding up God's word to him in light of that, if you're believing that God owes you that because he's obligated to you, then the answer is no. That is not the way that you pray. Because God does not obligate himself to anyone. He is God. Anything God gives you and I is a gift of love and grace. It's not about him obligating himself to us. But verse 10 sets the tone of what he's saying to us. It's a posture of prayer. It's that posture of humility. He's humbling himself before God. And what I realize is this. When we do simply speak God's promises back to him, it's not that we're saying, God, you must be, you know, you don't remember or you don't care. So let me remind you, no, we're not collecting. But I came up with this thought. We're harmonizing with God. We're getting on the same page with God. We're agreeing with what God has already said about us and over us. So that's why we go back and we say, God, you promised this to us. Yeah. And can I tell you about something about prayer? Sometimes prayer sounds a lot like whining. Okay. Realize that. Okay. It's, and it's okay. It's okay. God, this is a huge issue. How do I correct this, God? And and so here's a couple of things about prayer that I can share with you as we move through this kind of quickly. Prayer is not passive, but it is about humility. It's not passive because there's a difference between that of passivity and humility, but it's about humility. And if we're going to hold God's word up to him, then I think we have to understand that it's about position and posture within our prayer. And that posture is this. It's an understanding of who God is and who I am and who I'm not. And that he is God and I am not God. That is what we're doing. You see, Jacob is struggling with how this lines up with the promise that God had given him before. Now he's facing his brother. His back is to the river. He's separated his camp. So how does this all line up? And what I realize is this. We submit to God in light of his promise. It's not God submitting to you and I because he obligated himself. We submit to God in light of what God has promised you and I. So prayer is not passive, but it is about humility. And prayer is not about perfection. God is not waiting for you to form your words perfectly before he answers you. God is not waiting for you to have perfect theology before God answers you in prayer. Listen, 
Look at the story. Look at the narrative. Jacob is praying to God in the middle of his doubt, in the middle of his struggle, in the middle of hatching his own plan, which he's really good at, and then inviting God to join his plan and to bless his plan. He's in the middle of all of that. So prayer is not perfect. He continually relies on himself. And in the middle of this, God continues to work. I think it's amazing about how grace works in our life. And then he says in verse 12, and I think it's something is so powerful. He says this, but you said, but you said, God, he's emoted to God. He's whined to God. He's schemed. I would have done all the same things. He's reminded God of not only his promise, but he's reminded God of what Esau is absolutely capable of, capable of. And he says in verse 12, but you said, God, but you said, that is so powerful, but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. When you don't know what to do, when you don't know what to say, you go to this, but you said, God. Because here's the thing, prayer should be passionate. Lord, this seems insurmountable in my life, but you said, God. My brother is coming to give me what I rightfully deserve, but you said, God. God, I'm part of the problem. I created this issue. I own that. But you said, listen, it's okay to whine. It's okay to lament. It's okay to be honest and transparent with God. Understand that prayer is not just a part of our relationship. Prayer is our relationship with God. It is. If you don't believe how powerful that is to communicate with those who love you, and those who walk out life with you, then make a decision right now that you're no longer going to speak to your spouse. Just say that and then walk that out. Can I tell you what? If you're, you know, if you're a guy, then you're going to be sleeping on the deck is what you're going to be doing outside your house, right? Make that, listen, say, I'm never going to speak to my roommate again. Then I want to tell you at some point, somebody's going to be moving out. Why? Because it is relationship. Pour your heart out to God. Even when you've been the perpetrator of the sin, pour your heart out to God because he's always listening because it's part of who he is in his sovereignty toward you and I as Lord and God. He listens. So I shouldn't plan then, Mark. Is that what you're saying? I shouldn't make any plans for my life? No, no. I, I would say to you this, prayerfully plan. And I thought about, Lord, you know, what does this mean to me? In, in my own prayer life. And, and, and I made some notes about that. And, and what this means to me is where I begin in prayer is I confess my inability. I declare God's ability. I confess my inability and I declare God's ability within my life. I, I, the second thing is this. I have to believe that God is for me and not against me. And I think that's murky sometimes in our lives. It really is. Especially when we're like Jacob, who, who has perpetrated the situation that he finds himself. Because sometimes we wonder, God, are you just trying to kill me? Right? Yes. And then we practice the promise by submitting our ways and our plans to him. That this is not about us. That this is about him. So I submit those things. I practice the promise by submitting my ways and my plans. And then I hear from God. And I obey God, not through fear, but I obey God through love. So what does the rest of the story tell us? It's Genesis 32 again. Bump down to verse 24 for a moment to save us a little time. Go down to verse 24. 
He has separated his family. He has divided his wives and his children. And then what he says in verse 24, And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, Your name shall be no longer called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. And the last thought this morning about prayer is that practicing prayer can at times resemble a wrestling match. It really can. You know, why is it so difficult for us at times? It's perhaps one of the most difficult spiritual disciplines that we participate in. Because I I would say as I I read this, I realized that we pray like we're being pinned to the mat by an opponent, that we pray like our back is against uh, the river. And Esau is, is coming with 400 men, and we don't know his intention within our life, that we stand there between you know, uh, what's between us and could be impending doom is simply a promise that God gave us and a God that never fails us. Yet we stand there in our doubt and our brokenness. We stand there in our schemes and our plans of life. And God still works through his grace in our life. So I'm just going to clean myself up and get all the doubt out of my life. And I'm going to get rid of all the schemes of my life. And then I'm going to pray. And then God is going to hear me. And again, you're trying to earn something from God that you don't deserve. Understand that. It's not that at all. There's a beautiful story of grace here that God speaks. Here's, here's, here's Jacob. You know how old Jacob is? Jacob's 97. You know, how do you wrestle a 97-year-old man, right? You, you know, he's not a formidable foe, right? And this this... What we consider to be God that he's wrestling with. I mean, he's the, he's the WWF champion, right? So he's way out of his league. So the physical confrontation is not the point. You say, well, the point's persistence. Because Jacob won't let him go. So if he's persistent enough, then God just kind of surrenders to him. And God gives in. And, and that's not the point either. That's part of it, but that's not the ultimate point. I think what brings the blessing It's not that God surrenders. That's not what brings the blessing here. What brings the blessing is that Jacob concedes. He surrenders. Because he accepts that he's no longer Jacob, but he's now Israel. There has to be that moment in my life and your life. Look at verse 30. So Jacob called the name of the place, but I'll sing. For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose when he had passed Penuel, limping uh, because of his hip, as he limps forever after that. And therefore to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. So let me tie all these together for us this morning. That what I believe is two things that we learn from this text. The first is this. God's promises are realized in our life through prayer. Understand that. That God's promises in my life and your life are realized through prayer. That we firmly and relentlessly hold to the promises of God. You know. 
So, so let me ask you a question real quick. How many of you have ever kept a gift card so long that you forgot you had it? Anybody? Put your hand up. Have you ever done it? Okay, that's good. That's wonderful. Now you're going to go find it today, right, and redeem it. But first you're going to call the 800 number on the back because you don't want to be embarrassed when you use it. And they say, I'm sorry, but this is expired or there's no money on this. And so you do that. We all do that. And I think so many times in our lives, we pray through our prayer lives and we have this gift card from God, yet we never redeem that. And what I understand is God's promises are realized in our life through prayer. Even when Esau is about to arrive with 400 men, that can I tell you in that moment, I think that... <clears throat> Jacob must have thought that God was so distant and God was, God was uncaring. But can I tell you, that thought of God being distant and uncaring is an absolute illusion. It doesn't exist in Jacob's life. It doesn't exist in mine. So we press through. We press through. Why is it so challenging in prayer for you and I? Because prayer is not just about giving you things. Prayer is not just about God making good on something that he promised you. Prayer is about your growth. Prayer is simply about knowing that your strength is in God's goodness and not yours. That's what prayer is about. It's about taking you to a place in your life where all the... And Matthew and I talked about that this, uh, this week. That all the cobwebs are removed from your mind and your heart and you see clearly who you trust in. It it clears the muddy waters at times in your life. Because it's much more about a relationship with you and God than it is about God just fulfilling a promise that he's obligated to you. Because what I realize is that submission is a key factor to our prayer life. Because how do you lose the fight and still win big? You know, that's, that's, the, that's the issue here. How do you do that? Because I believe it's through that submission. And that submission is achieved when you understand the true object of your prayer life. And yes, we, we pray those promises and... We speak those promises back to God to put us on the same page that God is, God is on in life because we want to be on God's page, not ours. But what I realize is that that submissions brings me to an understanding of the object of my prayer life. And the object of my prayer life is not necessarily the promises. The object of my prayer life is God himself. Here's Jacob. He doesn't know how things are going to turn out, does he? He's standing there and he's divided his family. And, you know, he has two wives. Go back and read the story from Genesis. He has Leah, the one that he was tricked into marrying from his uncle Laban. And the Bible says that Leah has soft eyes. And I don't know, you can interpret that however you want, you know. Some people said that she wasn't the most beautiful of the daughters. I don't know what necessarily 
that would all mean. But, and then he really wanted Rachel, who was evidently very stunning. And so it shows the imperfection of Jacob, in the, even in the middle of this moment of, of a miraculous move of God, that what does he do? He sends Leah and her children out in front of him and Rachel. Isn't that terrible? Isn't that awful? It's just terrible. And I even hate to say it, but that's what he does if you read chapter 33. And you would think, if I were God, I'd say, eh, uh, hit the button, cancel this guy, you know. Esau, he's all yours, buddy. Just, just do whatever you want to with him. But if you go down to Genesis 33, verse 4, it says, well, first of all, it says that and I just kind of paraphrase this, that Jacob begins to limp out toward Esau. He bows seven times in honor of his firstborn brother. And he's limping. And I could imagine when Rachel and her children and Leah and her children see Jacob walking out with a limp, they know that he has been with God. They already know what has happened. They know that he has contended with God. And so again, it says to them and to all of us that to say that God is absent or God is uncaring is an illusion. Doesn't exist. And verse 4 says, But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. And when I realized that the greatest thing that happened in that wrestling match between God and Jacob was not necessarily that God made good on a promise, but that there was a relationship formed between God and Jacob. And from that relationship would become a lineage and a line of people. And from that lineage and line of people would become a God-man by the name of Jesus who would give his life for the salvation of all humankind. God does turn things around when you pray. And I know some of you are so jaded by this and you've asked so many times and you didn't get what you want. And have you ever thought that what we start with in our prayer life is that the ultimate purpose of that is relationship with God? And if you have spent time with him and he has spoken to you and you have sensed his presence within your life, then yes, you have gotten what you need. But God goes beyond that, doesn't he? God does answer promises. And God does turn situations around in those moments when we feel helpless. So for a moment, would you bow your heads with me for prayer? Father, wow, Lord, this, this narrative that you've given us from Genesis, so powerful. And such an opportunity that we have to share that, that encourages us and challenges us in this spiritual discipline of our life of prayer and God, that it's a struggle for all of us for time and schedule and moments and then content 
but we realize, God, that there are far greater things in the balance here than just, Lord, you making good on a promise or that we are reminding you of something that you're obligated to do. But this is truly about relationship with you, Father. This is about growth in our own heart and our life. This is about us refocusing upon that of our faithfulness. It's not grounded in our goodness, but our faithfulness is grounded in your goodness toward us, God. And God, in that moment, in that moment with you, you turn things around, Lord. You change hearts and lives. So, God, we are not helpless backed in a corner. We're not some group of people that have cowered down to, to the things in the world because they're so big and it's just that all the brokenness is so enormous. God, that we just will simply withdraw from life. No, God, we press in and we press through today and we press in in prayer, God, believing, believing, God, that the effectual and fervent prayer of your child does bring about much. We believe that, Father, because that's your promise to us. So our prayer does affect our relationships and our prayer does have positive effect on the social issues of our world and our prayer does have effect on disease and our prayer does have an, an effect God uh, upon political unrest and, and, and the lack of peace in our culture our prayers do change things because of you God and we realize our inability your great ability to bring change. So, Father, move in our hearts this week. Move in our lives this week to make prayer a greater part of who we are as a believer. And, Father, but to always realize that you're able, God, to turn situations around so we're thankful for that this morning.